This podcast is presented by Data and Society, a research institute in New York City focused on social, cultural, and ethical issues arising from data-centric technological development. For more information, visit datasociety.net. In this talk, Andrew Guthrie Ferguson discusses his book, The Rise of Big Data Policing, that critically examines data-driven surveillance technologies and their legal impact on everyday policing. Andrew Guthrie Ferguson is professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia's David A. Clark School of Law. He is a national expert on predictive policing, big data surveillance, and the Fourth Amendment. So I want to just do a brief overview of how technology is changing policing. I want to bring you to a modern police car where they are following predictive policing algorithms. They're chasing these little boxes of predicted forecast crime. Crime within 500 by 500 square feet, be it in Philadelphia or Santa Cruz or LA, where they are looking at the accumulated data from crime statistics. Uh, some models have more sophisticated algorithms that might add in weather. If it's raining, bad guys don't like getting wet. Some days, days of the week might affect things, right? If it's Friday, it's payday, you might get an uptick in robberies. If there's a big football game on Sunday, it can actually change crime patterns. And basically, all this crime data gets crunched down to forecasts, forecasts of particular crime, at a particular location, at a particular time. And police are directed to go spend their time in the box, to deter and protect, to focus on these particular areas in a way to change the police policing patterns and thus the crime patterns uh, in a society. And it's happening in, I think, about upturn said 60 cities, is that right? Um, in the most recent thing, and maybe even more. Um, you have then targeted people. Place-based predictive policing leads to person-based predictive policing. You have places like Chicago's heat list, where every person who's been arrested for the last four years in Chicago has gotten a threat score from one to 500. So every person, 400,000 people, have gotten a threat score. And the people they care about are the people with the high threat scores up in the 500s. And those threat scores result in police coming and surveilling you, knocking on your door, telling you you are on uh, this list, uh, maybe giving you a choice of social services and the rest. But it changes, again, the targeting mechanism. This is just one of the various uh, uh, public health approaches. Right On one hand, maybe you're trying to figure out the people who are most likely to be involved in violence. On the other hand, maybe it becomes essentially a social control mechanism to, and a virtual most wanted list uh, that's a short-circuiting for normal police uh, practice. What's strange is that currently the dashboard score, the score, the 1 to 500, shows up on the police dashboard. It's hard to see here, but this is like the SSL score. And so when you run your name, you get stopped in Chicago, the score pops up to identify your threat level. It might be a threat that you could be the victim of violence, or it could be a threat that you are going to be uh, one of the people more violent. And of course, crime happens in groups. Um, the idea of being able to identify people and groups who are involved in crime is the beginning of this social network analysis. In LA, they have this thing called the chronic offenders. It's kind of like the people on the heat list, except one of the flaws in the chronic offender targeting mechanism um, is that you are that you are targeted based on the high your high score and your score it doesn't I wouldn't call it an algorithm it's really just math it's basically you add up whether you're on probation and parole uh, whether you have a certain other you know gang criteria and then the number of contacts that you have had with police and one of the flaws of course is that if you have a high score police contact you which gives you an extra point in your score so of course you have this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy problem uh, because police patrol patterns are going to affect who is thought of as most dangerous. But the real genius piece of it, 
the evil genius of Palantir, is that they, uh, part of what police are doing is that they are collecting data to go back into the larger systems, right? So you're trying to figure out who is this person with? What car are they driving? Who uh, are they associated with? And be able to sort of map the patterns of people connected. You want to know their associates. You want to be able to figure out who's working with who, who's in certain neighborhoods, who's in certain um, uh, cars. You can then go track through and see whether uh, people are acting in groups and how those groups are connected. Obviously, borrowing from some of the same technology that was used to track terrorists across the, the world, uh, you can now track gangs across Los Angeles and be able to figure out through social network analysis who's associated with whom. Um, all of this is being watched by cameras, surveillance cameras, fancy surveillance cameras right here in New York City, 9,000 link cameras with a domain awareness system, uh, being able to watch in real time, being, having automated prompts to be able to capture the cars coming in, being able to automate it to see if there's some suspicious activity, whether someone puts down a bag and walks away. Is that a terrorist or is that a tourist? Like, what's going on? These things are recording, capturing, and being able to use, obviously, for investigative purposes for, I think they keep it for about a month. Uh, to see it. They also can track, if they want, all the people wearing a certain outfit. If they want to see all the people who've worn a, you know, a red hat in lower Manhattan, they can go back and find the place, the people, and all these things at the same time. And being able to do this kind of focused surveillance on an area, because the cameras are only in particular areas, uh, but be able to use it as true investigative uh, abilities to figure out where people have been, being able to target groups and or uh, find individuals if they want to find an individual. I'm sure it's being used right now after uh, this week's events. Uh, you also have mass surveillance technology that's changing how police do their jobs, right? These cameras are not only um, focused on uh, particular places, but sometimes you have fixed cameras, right? Outside Skid Row, there are cameras that are connected to facial recognition technology and open warrants to be able to see if they can match uh, the, the, an open warrant from someone walking past. Uh, eventually, this technology will end up in bo police body cams. We're not quite there yet in terms of facial recognition capabilities or battery life, but we'll see that soon enough, no doubt, in the future, where body cams will become part of this idea of being able to map not just whether someone has an open warrant, but where they've been at times. Right? You basically are creating a new uh, ability to uh, map people, places, uh, through police patrols. Um, persistent surveillance cameras going over West Baltimore is one of the more fascinating stories the last couple years. Right? They had these cameras built into Cessna planes flying over West Baltimore, filming the entire area of West Baltimore, and then listening to the radio runs. So there'd be like a bank robbery, and they'd say, okay, let's go roll back the tape. And we'll be able to figure out where the people got out of the bank, what car they got into, how they switched cars, got into their mom, you know, ended up their mom's house. And you can watch the whole thing. You know, they call it like a TiVo, you know, with Google Earth. You could go back and rewind the tape and have your virtual time machine to solve crimes. Amazing, except they hadn't bothered to tell the city council or the mayor or anyone that they were doing this. And then it got shut down because Bloomberg Business Week, of all people, uh, wrote an article about it. And these are the changes, right, of being able to do these mass technology. You know, we are, have, and will continue to sort of give up this data, right? It used to be that if police wanted to stop people and, and target people and surveil people, they had to go sit in these you know, hot cars drinking cold coffee and watch them. That's what they did. How many movie plots are based on sitting there, right? Now you just sit back and watch someone leave their smart home, get in their smart car with GM OnStar, with their smart Fitbit and those smart phones in your, in, that you have in your pocket, and you, just, you can just do your work from your home, right? You can do it from the office. Uh, you don't have to do this work. And we're giving this up through our sense surveillance, through this idea of being able to track these data, data trails. Uh, and we're doing it in a way that is obviously um, 
uh, at this moment, till the Supreme Court decides Carpenter, without a whole lot of Fourth Amendment protection, without a whole lot of regulatory uh, intervention, and it's pretty much giving up our patterns and practices of travel uh, to the government if anyone wants to sort of go through the process of getting their you know, SCA subpoena. Um, and this self-surveillance is growing. It's growing in terms of all of, all of our uh, abilities to sort of build smart devices for things we didn't think we need. Like, do you really need a smart coffee cup or a smart cup? Tell you how much you don't need this. But all these data trails through third parties are building out a way. Smart cities are developing that, again, are going to be both very helpful and efficient, but also tracking devices. And all of that's going to change how police do their jobs. It's all going to change, change how prosecutors do their jobs, right? Much of criminal law is about trying to fill in the gaps when someone didn't know what happened. Now we're going to have all these data clues that are going to change how we do prosecutions and how we look at uh, different patterns in society, right? Most of you um, know young people, some of you are young people, and you know the world has transformed and people are now in, uh, now you are sharing things in social media. There are literally gangs out there tweeting threats at each other, right? You are putting YouTube videos revealing your criminal activities and doing the dumbest things, but that's what happens if you're young, right? It used to be you did that in the comfort of your home, now you do it online, and guess who's watching? You know, NYPD. Guess who's studying this? Chicago gang unit is now solely devoted, it seems like, to watching YouTube videos, right? Because so much is happening there, right? Uh, and it makes sense. Like, people are giving it up, and it's changing how people are prosecuted. It's changing who's getting targeted because of associational relationships, right? If you've been, if you're hanging out with a bunch of people that they are targeting, suddenly you're part of this group, right? And you're building out these social networks via the, the digital information and the uh, social media information that you're providing. Same thing with being able to track uh, groups of protests, right? Geophedia, before it got shut down, was able to capture the group of people who was at you know, the Freddie Gray trial, or Freddie Gray protest, or be able to figure out who's uh, you know, at a particular place. You just you know, uh, uh, target this group, and you're able to then track them from then on. So these changes of technology are all augmenting what we know has always been happening, where we've been collecting criminal justice data Right? Our DNA, our iris scans, our facial recognition technologies, um, our gait, our tattoos, all the documentations that live in archaic you know, criminal justice systems that we were talking about earlier. Uh, all of these things exist uh, and are growing every day. Every day there's some clerk typing in more information that's going to be part of this growing criminal justice uh, database. And it's changing how police look for uh, suspects. It's changing uh, uh, how police are, uh, and prosecutors are investigating crimes. And it is something that I think people haven't been focusing on. I mean, one of the weird things about studying this is all of, everything I just described is happening somewhere. But none of it's happening anywhere, right? It's all being piloted in different places. And so people haven't put together the concerns of this sort of datafying of criminal justice and policing, right? People haven't thought through the consequences of whether we really want to be doing this, and if we want to be doing it, how we do it smarter, how we do it in a more thoughtful way, how do we deal with some of the concerns that arise from policing as we know it, involving racial bias and other sorts of uh, poverty bias, whether we have concerns about uh, the fairness, the transparency, the accountability, and whether we can really respond to any of these concerns if we are moving forward in this way. Um, so the book tries to wrestle with this problem, right? It sort of lays out, like, this is this new world, a world that is growing and changing every day, uh, and that there are some real problems with it. And so I sort of have five problems I try to address in the book. The first is, why now? Why are we in this world, right? Why are we moving toward this world of big data policing? And I say, you know, in addition to technology, which is the obvious thing, right? Part of it is that we can do more with, la with, with 
that with this information than we ever could have before. We have people who understand artificial intelligence, people who understand how to manipulate databases, who can use the collected data, it can do things that we just couldn't do before. And that's clearly pushing a lot of it. But there are other motivations, right? Because policing has never been at the forefront of technology, right? It's never been leading on its own. It's always being influenced by technology companies and other technologies. So why now? Why are we seeing this growth? And I have, you know, in addition to technology, two reasons. One is it's a response to the recession, right? 2000, 2000, 2008, 2009, police departments all over America had to cut people, human beings, who were their employees, who were supposed to be out there protecting everyone. Um, and with the fear of a recession, they thought crime would go up. It didn't go up, of course, but they thought crime would go up, and so they needed an answer. They needed to say, what are you going to do? Every chief in America has an impossible job, right? Because they get asked, chief, what are you going to do to reduce crime? And the real answer is, well, we need better schools, we need better job prospects, we need to give hope and opportunity, and we need to rebuild that. But that's not on the table. But what was on the table was, don't worry, we have a new technology. Don't worry, we just did this, we just adopted this predictive policing model. Don't worry, we have this black box solution to the problem. And whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter, because you have an answer. You have an answer to the unanswerable question. The same thing is true with race, right? In the last three to four years, we saw a growing uh, outrage and rage that honestly has been there since the beginning of policing. But we saw it come to a national conversation of what are we going to do about this citizen police tension? What are we going to do about this distrust? And there was an answer again. We're going to follow the data. We're going to follow the objective data because that is going to remove us from the bias, implicit or explicit, that is part of policing. It's not true, right, because it doesn't take into account a lot of the inputs that are coming in, but it's an answer. It's an answer that allows you to go forward. You know, right here in New York City, Chief Bratton was great about it, right? Right after, you know, the, the stop and frisk program is declared unconstitutional, he says, don't worry, we're just going to do predictive policing. We don't need stop and frisk anymore. We have a new theory and a new way to, to, to bring crime down, right? And that was the response. And it has been a, a useful response, whether true or not. It was a reason why people adopted this, bought into it, and moved forward. There's also a lot of money behind it. But. Um, so how does it change it, right? How does it change where we police and who we police? I want to do a, uh, like a deeper dive in a second about who we police. But there are some really interesting changes about even like when we police, like time, right? One of the more uh, interesting uh, uh, experiments that they had was a thing called Beware Software uh, that was basically the same big data information that sends you catalogs in the mail was being fed to law enforcement officers in Fresno before they entered the apartment complex of the suspect. And again, from a police officer's perspective, like you kind of do want to know who lives in a particular house or apartment, right? Is it going to be, you know, a grandma or a gangbanger? Like it matters. It matters to your safety and everything else. The problem is the big data information coming in was pretty much the same big data information that sends you the wrong catalog in the mail. Uh, and there was not, it wasn't necessarily uh, accurate or true, although it was providing information. Some police departments have their own sort of internal uh, vision of this. But the idea is that it was giving more information quicker. And that changes actually what police have to do. Right? Police officers generally are not data analysts. They're not really uh, trained to deal with a whole lot of information, some of it source, some of it not. And this was changing how they had to respond and respond quickly. On the flip side, you had things like persistent surveillance system where you literally had a time machine. You go back in time and solve crimes. What agency doesn't want that? There are huge privacy issues. There are ridiculous uh, concerns about you know, associational freedoms and arrest. But from a practical matter of, wait a minute, so any crime that happens in public, I can go back and see and track to see who did it? 
it's really tempting in terms of uh, a law enforcement strategy. And so it's changing how police see what they need to do proactively and also reactively when they know they have this you know, data set to go investigate. Um, and you can solve crimes. There are examples where people are using these great data sets to go find the murderer. They go find the information that they need to, to do it. And so it's changing uh, what police do and how police have their role. But it all has a problem. And I say this problem is a problem of black data. To me, it's three related things. First, it's not transparent. It's opaque. You can't see through it, right? There's this problem of transparency in terms of the information going in and the information going out to, to the community to be able whether you can trust this, right? There's a real uh, issue of uh, transparency. There's a real issue of race, about whether the information is racially encoded with the inputs coming in. If you're worried that racial policing or that policing is racialized and biased, well, the inputs that are coming in for arrest or convictions, arrest are all going to be uh, biased in the outputs. And so you have to be aware of that if you're going to adopt these. You have to correct for it. And then there's a problem of law, right? We have a small data constitution. We have a small data Fourth Amendment, right? The thing, our entire doctrine of law was based on a time where an officer saw what they saw and reacted, not the information flows that were, are now available. And we haven't caught up. We haven't caught up. We're seeing hints of it, you know, with the Jones case and GPS, seeing hints of it in Riley with the cell phone case, and we might see, you know, hints of it, you know, in Carpenter if they adopt Andrew's uh, theory of, of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, but they, they, we don't have it yet. We haven't had our law uh, uh, meet our technology. And so the book sort of examines all of these black data problems with each of the different technologies about who, where, when, and how we police. I also have chapters in uh, saying, you know, maybe we could use the same data for different reasons. Maybe we could use this architecture of surveillance we've built to surveil citizens to surveil police. Right, the same cameras that are pointing out at civilians are also pointing at police. The same data mining technologies that are able to predict criminal action can also predict uh, police uh, problems. Uh, there's some interesting studies, like in Charlotte Mecklenburg, they had some data scientists embed and take all their data to see if they could predict incidents of violence. And they're able to show that actually officers that had responded to like a really traumatic event, maybe it was like a, a suicide or a child death, tended to have higher incidents of violence the next shift which kind of makes sense. Officers are human beings, they see so traumatic, they're still processing it, they get to the next thing and they overreact or they react poorly, right? And that's an easy fix. You can take that information and be like, don't send that guy who just saw that to the next incident, right? They looked at domestic violence cases and saw that when there were one or two officers that responded to a scene, uh, it tended to escalate, the violence escalated with the domestic violence alleged abuser. Um, but if you put lots of officers, it actually calmed things down because this is a guy who wasn't going to get a fight. And they realized that this is just a, a strategy change that comes from looking at the data. We didn't know this. We didn't have in intuitions about it, but the data shows. So maybe we can do this. Jennifer Eberhard out in Stanford, uh, because of a federal court order, was able to watch what Oakland PD was doing, the police department was doing, uh, for two years to determine whether there was a racial uh, bias in their policing when, guess what, there was. Uh, but one of the interesting data mining things she did was she looked at the audio of the body cameras, right? So all the police have their body cameras, but then she mined the audio to see if officers talked to different people differently. Do they talk to people of different races differently? And they found they did. In fact, they could predict whether an officer was talking to a white person or a black person based on sort of the honorifics they used or the apologies, right? And this is probably implicit bias. Officers probably aren't thinking necessarily about how they're doing it, but something that data would be able to show to improve. 
Same thing with something I call bright data, which is like, maybe the problem of predictive policing is the policing part. Maybe the identification and the risk analysis of, you mean this place is gonna be the, the subject of crime, this area, this location, this, and there's something environmentally problematic about this area? We don't have to put a cop car there, we can just fix it up, right? If there's something going on there, we can actually fix up the environment about what is causing crime here instead of just sort of deterring it with a police officer. If we think this individual is more likely to be involved in crime, instead of sending a cop to knock on his door, maybe we try to give him the social services to redirect him in, in a way. We don't even need police for that. There's no policing remedy that has to go with the risk identification, but we have connected them because of our funding streams. We've connected them because of that's the way the money has come, and that's the way we think about predictive policing, but they can be very separate. Um, and, um, the, 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 and cities can choose, if they wanted to, to invest in the, the remedy part of predictive analytics as opposed to the policing part of it. And the final, Issues like, well, what do we do with this, right? How do we respond to a world? If data and data-driven policing is changing policing, what do we do as citizens? How do we respond to uh, this future? How do we engage in a way that maybe creates awareness, creates uh, uh, education, and uh, maybe law, regulation, or something uh, to check it? Because right now, there's pretty much no check. So I want to take just a quick few moments to, to dive a little deeper into one of the problems I see, so we have something to talk about, uh, about who we police, right? And the Chicago Helix, like Palantir's up there from New Orleans. It's a, it's a good story in the book. Uh, but you know, so Chicago has this idea of that they can identify the people most at risk of violence. And if you are in this category, the top uh, people, you gotta knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. It's a detective or a senior police administrator with a social worker, maybe someone from the community, to tell you that you're on this list. And guess what, we have a piece of paper, it's called a custom, custom notification letter, that says why we think it's you. And we have a, a warning for you. If you take the wrong path, you know, there are two doors in life, you go to A, maybe you get out of this life and things get better, you go to B, we're gonna lock you up. We're gonna bring down the hammer on you because you've made our list and we're warning you. And this is, you know, a measure of social control. This is a measure of uh, uh, algorithmic judgment. And you might ask, well, how do you get on this list? They have a pretty simple algorithm now where the input, they won't tell you what the actual algorithm, but the inputs are, they, they just finally revealed, uh, which is basically they look at your past arrests for violence, weapons, or drugs, whether you've been the victim of a shooting or an assault, your age at the last arrest, the younger the age, the higher the risk, and then the trend line is going up or down. And that's it. It's changed over time. At one point they were co-arrest, people were connected together. At one point it was gangs, they realized that was too mushy a, a category. So this is your, your group. And based on this, you get this threat score, right? And you know, it's based on theory. There are sociologists who said, look, focused deterrence is a way to bring down crime. In fact, if you read the headlines uh, last week, they say that they just dropped at, shootings just dropped again in the areas they were using these technologies and these theories, right? They say, look, the people getting shot in Chicago are young people, they tend to be people of color, they tend to be people in gangs who are basically don't trust the police and are shooting each other. Like basically, we're not gonna go to the police for justice, we're gonna take justice, and this is this back and forth. If we can intervene there, if we can stop there, well maybe we can um, uh, bring down police, make uh, bring down violence. Maybe it you know, makes sense in theory, um, but there's some problems with it, right? A, we don't know if it works, despite the anecdotal evidence that the Chicago PD wants to, to show you. B, they've done an interesting sort of data thing where because of this, is Upturn revealed all this wonderful stuff, because of their numbers, there's like more than half the people 
uh, more than half of those 400,000 people have an elevated score. So Chicago Police Department gets up and say, look, you know, we're right because 80% of the people who are shot were on our list. And you, the response is like, that's true, but you had like 200,000 people on your list. Like, that's a lot of potential people, right? Both can be true, but the data behind it is a little misleading, right? It's not precise. It's just you've over, uh, you've over your, your list is, is overbroad. And you know, that's a few times we've had some data scientists look at it, uh, like Rand did their study. They couldn't find any statistical uh, uh, support for it. But Chicago Police Department's response was, hey, we've changed it. You know, it's a different system. It's a different algorithm. So you know, your critique is valid, but it was from the old system. And this is where we are. We don't know if it works. Chicago police are tripling down on it. Like they are in the news saying this is our new way. We got Hunch Lab in our place-based predictive policing. We got uh, the heat list and the street subjects list in our person-based system. We are, we are buying more shot spotters. We are going after. This is our, our response to the fact that the nation is watching and thinking that we have a horrible murder rate. And they do. I mean, they do have a terrible murder rate. The question is, what do you do with it? So how do we illuminate this black data problem? And more often, is this a society we want, right? Is it fair to have a score and to be scored? We normally don't think of ourselves as being like the scored people that people are walking down the street like in, you know, they, they threaten to do this in China with your social scores. But oh look, that person has a 500, that person has 250. You definitely are gonna have like a 300 if you dig too you know, deeply into, it, into his past, right? I mean, these are the problems. Do you wanna be judged by this in this way? Is it fair? We know there are racial bias problems in policing. How do these racial bias problems get uh, uh, fixed or exacerbated in the data? And do they get justified by the data? If you're a police officer, you say, look, you had a 500. I don't know how the damn thing works. You had a 500, I stopped him, right? And these are some of the problems with as you, you build out these things. And so as in a room of smart data scientists, you can understand that you know, transparency is kind of a problem and yet not the problem, right? Yes, there's a black box problem that we can't understand and, we, and they won't show us the algorithm. They're proprietary you know, technologies with some of the predictive policing softwares. But you know what? Even if you could reveal it, the vast majority of everyone else not in this room would have no idea if you showed them the algorithm. What does that mean to people, right? They'd look at it and be like, I have no idea what this is. It's a bunch of symbols. I have no idea. I'm, not, I'm a cop. I'm not a data scientist. I don't know if it works. I don't know how these things uh, work together. And this idea of transparency, even if you revealed it, isn't terribly helpful. The second problem is that it's constantly changing. There's a problem with technology, right? What you studied in the past isn't, studied, isn't what you're going to be using in the future. And so it's moving too quick to do these audits, right? You, we were talking about earlier that there's a difficulty if it keeps changing. So how are you supposed to evaluate it, right? And that's happening here. And then in the future with machine learning and neural networks and artificial intelligence, like the design won't allow you to see inside it, right? This goal of transparency is gonna be a false goal. You're gonna to have to have your accountable algorithms and other things that will be able to uh, give you uh, some measure of being able to feel confident in this, but you're not gonna be able to see it. And again, if this is a public safety situation with public citizens who are supposed to be paying attention, it doesn't give you any help if you can't understand it, right? You can't do the translation of some of these technologies. And you have the race problem, right? Chicago is a great example because, you know, the DOJ Civil Rights Department in 2017, this year, went to Chicago to study the race problem and said, you know what? There's systemic, endemic, long-standing racism, straight up, real racism, implicit, explicit, you name it, we got it, right? And if the inputs are the arrests, including arrest these things, that means the police themselves are contributing to the data that's going to feed the outcome, right? 
They, I think it's 56% of all 20 to 29-year-old African-American men are on the heat list in uh, Chicago. Thank you, Upturn, I believe, for giving us that. Um, but but you, you go into the data, you find these problems. Like You find the um, reality that the racial uh, uh, practice of policing, of patrolling, of the neighborhoods they're going to, if those become data inputs, they feel like objective data outputs, but they're not objective. They're part of this problem. And you have to figure out, is there a way with the system to deal with this so we, we, at least we can't pretend that it is somehow race neutral. And then law. Like, I'm a law professor. I love the Fourth Amendment. I love the idea. But like, our smart, small, small data policing system doesn't really work. You know, in, for those people who are lawyers, you know, the famous reasonable suspicion case is Terry v. Ohio. Officer, Officer McFadden is watching this guy case a sort of jewelry store. He's going back and forth. He looks suspicious. But Officer McFadden didn't know who John Terry was. He had no idea who he was. He didn't know that you know, he was a good friend with one of the gangsters in Cleveland, which he was. He didn't know that he had a drug problem, which he did. He didn't know he'd been arrested several times before, which was true. Um, and if you did know this information, if you were able to get this information from the, the dashboard score, which again, well, you can actually go look to see why you got this score, it's going to change how the officer deals with that human being. The suspicion is not going to be about what they're doing, but what they've done. It's not going to be about what we're, I'm observing now in the small data world. It's about how the big data information is shaping and reflecting um, your suspicion. It's going to change uh, risk. Uh, uh, it's going to change force and use of force. If you know someone is at risk for violence, there are 500, and you're that officer. Guess what? You're going to treat them differently, and you're going to treat them more defensively, and you're going to. It's going to be more violent. And so some algorithm is going to change Fourth Amendment freedoms and use of force, and we're not really sure if it works. And that's a real problem. Same thing with you know, place-based predictive policing in, this, in the sense of it's going to change suspicion. If you're looking for a burglary area and you're driving an area that's literally color-coded to show you it's supposed to be a burglary area, you see a guy with the bag, you're going to think maybe this guy has a burglar. Otherwise, you wouldn't think it would, he would be a burglar. But you know what? The computer told you to be on the lookout at this place at this time for burglary. So you're going to be suspicious. So in the book, I, I try to say, all right, well, you know, that's great. Set out the problem. Great problem. Now what? What do we do? What do we do in terms of empowering people to ask the hard questions? And so I put four, you know, five questions that I think every citizen is entitled to be able to ask their chief of police and their mayor before they buy this uh, new technology. And that there should be a moment, and I call them, you'll see in the next slide, surveillance summits, where the chief has to get up there and defend it. Say, you know what? The reason we bought this technology is here's what we think the problem is, and here's why we think we're right. And it's true that not every jurisdiction is going to need every system. Like if you're like in Laramie, you know, Laramie, you don't necessarily need a you know, domain awareness system, right? You can watch the people on the main street, right? If you are, you don't necessarily need a predictive policing system in every area, right? It doesn't always work in, uh, in, other, in every area. Um, and so you have to defend why you're spending this money instead of building, you know, a new library or giving raises to your police officers or hiring another human being police officer, right? Can you defend the inputs of the system, the accuracy of the data, the soundness of methodology? We're not doing that now. There's no moment where people get challenged on that, right? The only people we're really doing are journalists in some ways, and some, you know, there there are think tanks, upturn, you know, a few uh, entities like the ACLU. And like journalists who are paying attention and writing uh, articles about it. Um, can you defend the outputs of the system, how they impact police practice? Like all of this is going to impact communities and how you treat your community. If you think are driving through particular areas thinking that they are 
uh, high crime areas for a particular reason, because your computer is telling you they're high crime area, you're going to treat it differently. There are also ways to solve problems. If you think about this more of a bright data way, you might be able to solve some of the environmental vulnerabilities that exist there and identify them and fix them instead of policing them. Right? You might be able to do the social problems. Um, can you test the system? Like, do we have any measure, measures of accountability? Is there ever an accountability moment where someone has to say, like, you know what, we tried it, it didn't work. Maybe we don't want to spend the next $100,000 on it. And then, uh, is it respectful of the autonomy of the people, right? Data is only about, you know, one piece of the puzzle. Like, there are human beings who are being impacted by it. So I said we need to have a place for this. We should have annual surveillance summits where, you know, we hire entities like Upturn to come in and say, you know, this is how you should look at the technology, Mayor. You're not a, a data scientist. You're not a lawyer. In fact, there are only a few people who actually understand all of this stuff. And we're here to give you an objective vision about um, what it should be. And this is how you should evaluate it. There's a right answer. Maybe you use it, maybe you don't. Maybe you're scared, maybe you're not. Maybe it's a big brother world, maybe it's not. But at least you have the information to be able to do it. And this is your moment where everyone pays attention. The ACLU is in the room, the Brennan Center is in the room, um, Data and Society is in the room, everyone's in the room, the community's in the room, the company's in the room, and you defend it. And maybe you decide. You say, OK, this is good, this is bad, here are the troubles, but there's this moment, this time uh, for discussion. And so this is the last slide, and then we're done, we can talk about it, is, you know, I view big data policing in this issue as a civil rights issue because it, it impacts different communities differently. And it impacts them in the traditional ways where people of color and poor communities are being uh, undermined using different, different systems and different uh, 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 technologies. This issue of black data is real, uh, and we haven't seen, at least yet, a real, you know, democratic move to engage, in part because it's fragmented and localized and it's difficult to do it in each place. But even in the cities, you know, there are a handful of cities where we've seen it. Um, you know, Somerville in, Mar in Massachusetts, and now Cambridge is debating to have some civilian oversight. Santa Clara and Oakland and Seattle, and there are a few places. Um, but we really haven't seen a movement to say, let's pay attention to see how technology is distorting police. Let's see how, see if we're comfortable with these new technologies, uh, and let's have a conversation about it. Let's have a debate and see the internal debate that's going on uh, before we move forward. And so my last pitch to you is, as fellow travelers in this debate, to help me spread this word and think about ways to get people engaged in debating these issues. Um, because they're not now, and I don't have the answers to uh, figure out how to get them to do it, but I think it's a conversation that needs to be had and a conversation that I hope we can all uh, help begin. So with that, I'm done.